Hey guys, it's been a while, huh? Sorry about the radio silence. Um, this whole pandemic thing is doing nothing for my own mental health instability, and I can imagine that it's not being particularly nice to anybody else out there. That all being said, I did promise monthly episodes, and I did fail on that promise. So firstly, to my patrons, I want to say huge, huge, I'm sorry. We're all kind of living day by day, and even though I feel a little bit better about sitting down and recording, I know that so long as this is our new normal, we're all going to be figuring it out. So I appreciate everyone's patience while I got my collective shit together, and I'm excited to bring you this episode. Thanks again for your patience. Hey there, it's Lindsay. I just wanted to quickly pop in again and do some housekeeping. First off, this particular episode is going to be talking about representation in pop culture when it comes to witchcraft and blackness specifically. So that means I am going to be mentioning the occasional spoiler or two. So consider this a blanket spoiler warning for a couple of series that include, but not limited to, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Pirates of the Caribbean, Angel Heart, American Horror Story Coven, Princess and the Frog, and a couple other series. You've been warned. Also, this episode does happen to mention Adorned by Chi. I mention this because I happen to be an affiliate with Adorned by Chi. They did not ask for their inclusion in this particular episode, but I really stand by what they do and would have included them regardless of my affiliation or not. So if you finish the episode and you want to find out more about Adorned by Chi, you can head to A-D-O-R-N-E-D-B-Y-C-H-I dot com. That's adornedbychi.com. And if you like any of their apparel, you can use the code DarkLakeTarot for a sweet little discount at checkout. Okay, that's enough of the housekeeping. Let's move into the podcast. I believe it was the summer of 2013. It was around the time that Sailor Moon had somehow miraculously despite all odds, burst back to life in the public anime sphere. There were talks of the anime being redone. There were talks of a brand new anime. But more excitedly for me, the manga was being re-released. As someone who grew up in the Bahamas, collecting the Sailor Moon manga was next to impossible, since the only way that I could get it was during the occasional family trips to Orlando, And if the local Barnes & Nobles didn't have the Sailor Moon manga, then I was pretty much out of luck. So, of course, once the issues were released, I quickly grabbed all of them. And it was through rereading the Sailor Moon manga as an adult that I had a very interesting reaction. And this reaction had to do with the way that Sailor Pluto was depicted. All of a sudden, I thought to myself... Sailor Pluto is black. <laughs> Welcome to Hey Magical Girl. Okay, I know what you're about to say. It's fine. I know it too. Strictly speaking, 
Sailor Pluto is in black. She is the daughter of a god that has been stuck at the time-space door since time immemorial. Race isn't really a thing that she is preoccupied with. But you can also imagine that when you're reading the manga for the very first time and you notice that Sailor Pluto's skin tone is noticeably darker than any of the other senshi, that you could forgive me and several other people for deciding to claim Setsunomayo as a black character. Now, when I thought about Sailor Pluto as potentially black, it kind of dawned on me that I wanted to explore the concept of blackness in witchy pop culture. I didn't think of this necessarily as the start of where Hey Magical Girl was going to go or even blossom from, but in hindsight, several years later, I can probably say that that was the tipping point. So while talking about what witchcraft in media would be interesting, and it's not something that I necessarily want to shy away from even in this episode, I want to specifically focus on how blackness is often interpreted through witchy media. Because, unfortunately, everything is political, even the radical idea of claiming a character as black. Well, first of all, let's consider what we even mean by a witch in pop culture. Mainly, I'm more interested in what do witches represent in pop culture. Because don't forget, all media is trying to tell a story, a message. And any major character, archetype, or role is essentially serving as a form of commentary to the larger world in which we live in. Never mind the fact that witches have a historical context to draw from, what specifically does the presence of a witch mean in your media? Well, it can mean a lot of things, but I think the normal thing is this re-examination of divine feminine power, the self-empowerment of the woman, and the re-empowerment of the feminine specifically. Yes, I do realize that this apology is pretty cisgender, so I do apologize right now to any of my listeners who do not identify as a woman or as femme. I'm again more kind of examining what the overall stereotype of witchiness tends to be in media, and it does seem to be pretty femme-centered. But I think that there's a reason for that. If you consider superheroes in the superhero genre to be the ultimate male power fantasy, then it would make sense that a witch would serve as the feminine equivalent. Think about it. We are talking about a character who, through ritual, craft, and their own sense of will, is able to conjure up exactly what it is that they desire. And that's a pretty scary thing, I think, for standard patriarchal media to consider. So I think it's also pretty common to say that a lot of us, especially if you are like me, a member of a marginalized community, that you find yourself in witchy characters, even more so if they happen to be witchy and queer, or witchy and black, or witchy and Latinx. You are essentially given a character where you are allowed to imagine what it's like to actually have power. Sometimes this can be a good thing. And oftentimes it's kind of muddy about whether or not it's good or bad. Obviously, there are some stereotypes that are pretty bad. Bring in your magical Negro and Asian characters, for example, where a character seems to be imbued with this supernatural ability to be knowledgeable and kind and always ready to lend the perfect word of encouragement to the, usually, white protagonist. 
There is also sometimes a problem when your stereotype of an ethnicity or a social status or a sexuality is also part and parcel of their witchiness. I think a lot of persons tend to remember the characters Willow and Tara from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I think this was a huge watershed moment, obviously, for LGBT representation, but it was kind of icky for me to watch because the analogy of queerness was synonymous with the exploration of magical powers. Only because I don't think that those things should have really been used in the same breath. But, you know, Joss Whedon in the 90s, ladies and gentlemen, to say nothing about how he treated sad characters. The infamous bury your gay segment when Tara, after reuniting with Willow after them breaking up, was tragically shot several minutes after making love. There's a lot to unpack about that, of course. But since my focus is primarily about blackness, I want to start at the root of all of it, which of course has to do with our ancestors being enslaved and brought to the new world by colonial masters. Upon landing on their new lands, slaves were often indoctrinated into Christianity, the belief system of their slave masters at the time. And if you didn't comply, you were often beaten until you did or until you died, whichever happened first. Traditional African spirituality or traditional African religious practices, as far as the African diaspora is concerned, evolved from the necessity of our African ancestors to mask their traditional spirituality or their traditional religious practices under the guise of Christian saints. This is where you get things like Santeria and Hudu or Vudun specifically. I'm originally from the Bahamas, so my country's indigenous spirituality when it comes to our African ancestors would be Obea. Now, depending on where you grew up and depending on your family's personal ties to their ancestry and to their traditional uh, indigenous practices, the involvement of traditional African spirituality in your family would have been pretty mixed. But I would hazard a guess and say that since the Caribbean in particular was successfully colonized in my terms, not a lot of us grew up with that knowledge in our back pocket, which is a bit of a shame. What that unfortunately means is that sometimes media has to fill in the gap on what we understand about our traditional African spiritualities. And because these things were often pretty racist in their origins, it kind of fails us collectively. Let's go to Haiti for a second, in 1915, when the U.S. was occupying the country. Haiti, of course, is vitally important to the history of the African diaspora in the Caribbean, as they were the first population of black slaves to overthrow their masters and declare independence for themselves. In any event, when Haiti gained their independence, they were immediately considered to be an enemy and a threat to imperialism, standard Western world tactic. And the indigenous spirituality of Vudun, or voodoo as you might know it, was a gigantic part of Haitian culture and therefore had to have been the work of the enemy as far as the West was concerned. In fact, uh, it was often signified as a sign of the country's, quote, savage inferiority, which I don't have to tell you is incredibly fucked up, right? Let's fast forward a little bit to 1915 when the United States happened to occupy Haiti. And it was the job of Catholic missionaries to stamp out the threat of Vudun in the country. Again, their words, not mine. 
1929, The Magic Island was written by William Seabrook, and it happened to include what would be known as the first description of the zombie. Now, zombies in Vudun are thought to be the corpses of those that pass on through unnatural means, such as murder. These corpses are revived by the local witch doctor, or Pokor, and essentially made to do the witch doctor's bidding. These corpses, stuck in a place between life and death, are what we know as zombies. But thanks to Seabrook taking a scene from a sugar plantation out of context and writing about it in his book, things got kind of blown out of proportion. And then the West was horrified at the idea of evil black magic, you begin to hear the air quotations there, using the bodies of the deceased for their own nefarious purposes. This, of course, led to the popularity of zombies in horror film, but specifically zombies summoned by an evil black witch doctor. This was the status quo until basically the 1940s when zombies themselves started to evolve to represent various types of fears in the American populace. But just as a friendly reminder, zombies in pop culture started off and will always be, in my mind, racist as fuck. But I'm getting off on a bit of a tangent here. Because voodoo specifically was seen as responsible for this zombie craze, it very quickly became the catch-all for any illicit magical practice. Remember, as far as Western media is concerned, black magic in particular is the domain of black practitioners. Again, incredibly fucked up. This has led to a very interesting phenomenon called Hollywood voodoo. You'll probably find it on TV tropes pretty easily. But it's this Americanized or pop-culturalized idea of what voodoo or other traditional African-based uh, religion or spirituality should look like. Of course, this is usually characterized by a African-American or Black practitioner of magic who often styles themselves as a priest or a priestess, and it's usually implied that they have some flavor of magical powers. And of course, because they're Black, this is not the standard magic that we're talking about here. This is dark, forbidden, deal with the devil, sell your soul, voodoo type magic. It's often sometimes conflated with a form of Hollywood Satanism. And uh, growing up as I did in the Bahamas where anything that wasn't Christianity might as well have been labeled Satanism, I can sort of see where they would get confused. Nonetheless, we're dealing with this weird facsimile of black spirituality centered around death and necromancy, almost always antagonistic in nature. Your telltale sign of Hollywood voodoo at play is usually a male practitioner, and they're usually stylized in a similar fashion to Baron Semedi, the loa of the dead in Haitian voodoo practices. You know, tall, lanky, top hat with a feather on it, skull and crossbone motif, especially if they're wearing a mask or face paint. Think Dr. Facilier from Princess and the Frog. Or heck, think of the actual Baron Semedi in the James Bond film Live and Let Die. Needless to say, this type of stereotype is only perpetuated through modern mainstream media and oftentimes is very far removed from actual Haitian voodoo or Louisiana voodoo practices, or any traditional African spirituality for that matter. Its only role is to serve as a fear tactic, a source of antagonism for your usually white protagonists. Now, I do say usually because obviously sometimes there are exceptions to the rule. In fact, in the movie Princess and the Frog, our heroine Tiana is not white. 
but she does kind of hold to some weird respectability politics in this sanitized, non-slavery implied uh, version of New Orleans. And, uh, well, that's another topic for another time, I guess. What's even weirder sometimes is when voodoo is often used as this blanket term for evil in a film, but not actually practiced by any black protagonist or antagonist in a film. If anyone remembers the skeleton key, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen the skeleton key, A, consider yourself lucky, and B, just go read the Wikipedia. That's not a movie that deserves your dollars, even for being a decent horror film. But again, getting off topic. But Lindsay, you might be asking, surely there's nothing wrong with having a black antagonist that happens to practice witchcraft or magic. And no, there isn't anything wrong with that. The issue kind of pops up when the stereotypes that show up are still rooted in a sense of anti-blackness or straight-up racism when it comes to a black magic practitioner. And it gets thornier still when the black person that they're using as an antagonistic force is based on somebody in real life. I'm looking at you, Marie Laveau. Now, full disclosure, I'm not a fan of American Horror Story in the same way that I am not a fan of most things that have to do with horror. Your girl is very squeamish. But I did get super excited when I saw all the promotional material for American Horror Story Coven, especially when you see the, one of the greatest actresses of all time, Angela Bassett, playing the Marie Laveau. Now, even if you're not a follower of Voodoo, you probably do know Marie Laveau, dedicated practitioner of Voodoo, as well as a noted healer and herbalist in New Orleans. She's become such an icon that it's often very hard to discern what is real and what is myth about her story. But nevertheless, you don't fuck with Marie Laveau. Which makes the turn that the character Marie Laveau takes in American Horror Story Coven to be a bit upsetting, even if you're not that well-versed in her story. For someone who is known to be a community healer and activist, to be seen portrayed instead as someone who would willingly sell out their own children to further their own goals reads nothing short of disingenuous and a gross misunderstanding of what Marie Laveau was all about. So no shade on Angela Bassett, I know for a fact that she did an amazing job, but it always read kind of hollow to read descriptions of Marie Laveau in that show to be so counterintuitive to what I knew about her growing up. Now this isn't a cry for realism. Again, I'm perfectly content with having a character that happens to be black and happens to be a magical practitioner. I just want them to be done well. When you present to me a character like Marie Laveau, and you tell me that she's supposed to be fighting for black liberation and black political resistance, yet she has no problem manipulating the members of her own community to try and usurp Supreme Witch Fiona Good and Delphine the Racist, it just shows that the show writers did not understand what presence and what importance hoodoo, voodoo, root working, folk magic of all persuasions, what that means to your black community. Of course, that's just one example of how pop culture seems to kind of fail black women or black witches in particular. Sometimes we're stuck with this proverbial blue balling where we're presented with an awesome black character that shows themselves to be powerful and omnipotent, and they're just used as set dressing. Let's talk about Tia Delma for a second. I love the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Well, at least the first three films. Let me say that, at least. So when the second film ended and we were greeted with Obeo woman Tia Dalma, played by Naomi Harris, I was entranced. 
This is the first time that I actually saw, even though this is heavily fictionalized, a glimpse of what a Obia woman or a swamp witch really looked like from a black lens. Even through all the exaggeration, Tia Dama felt to me like someone that I probably could have encountered if I just wandered the mangrove swamps in the Bahamas for a couple more minutes. To find out in the third film that she's actually Calypso, goddess of the sea, was amazing. It was one of my favorite things in the movie. And then, of course, they just hand wave her and have her turn into a bunch of crabs and summon a maelstrom where the final battle can take place. Yes, you can argue that she had some plot importance, but I would counter and say that her plot importance only really mattered when it came to aiding or abetting a white character. She only showed up because she was the only person who knew how to get Jack Sparrow back to life. She's caught up in this wholly unnecessarily loved squabble with Davy Jones. Not saying that I didn't necessarily enjoy it at the time, I just wonder about its actual importance to the plot. I feel like you could probably take a good portion of her scenes out and it would not really change the movie, which is a shame because again, I really loved Tia Dalma. She was a very rare example of a black witch that clearly had her own agenda and her own agency and once she got what she wanted, she didn't give a damn about the larger conflict at play. But you know, when your screen presence is not even an eighth of the entire film trilogy, uh, I question your necessity to telling the story. That's all. There's a weird thing that happens when blackness is often tied in with occultness. What I mean by that is you're presented with this character who is clearly magically gifted, but something about their appearance, the way that the camera follows them, their role in the story is presented as this being that is meant to be tamed and conquered. You see it often in characters like Epiphany in the movie Angel Heart, where great attention is pulled to the fact that she is young, nubile, and sexually learned, and just a hint of magic. It's that allure of conquering what isn't meant to be conquered. Oh yeah, did I mention that this character is barely an adult? She's like 17 in this film. So on top of the gross fetishization of a black woman, we have this gross fetishization of a witch. It's great! With characters like her and Marielle Duchamp from The Serpent and the Rainbow, I notice a disturbing and not all surprising trend of colorism when it comes to these depictions of witches. For characters like Marie Laveau or Tia Dalma, they're not necessarily presented as sex symbols, although there is obviously something very alluring about them. But the difference between those two and Epiphany Marielle is that, well, Epiphany Marielle are light-skinned women. There's nothing wrong with that particular depiction of blackness, obviously, but when that particular type of blackness has long since been hammered into our media as the only acceptable, truly beautiful type of blackness, there is this weird undercurrent that this particular type of blackness is the only thing that is sexually available and sexually powerful, and those that grasp at it for their own ends or by their own means are almost always darker-skinned. There is a strange prettiness to Tia Dalma in particular, She's not a character that's styled for consumption in the same way that Elizabeth Swan is styled for consumption, but she still dresses and acts coquettishly. But unlike Elizabeth Swan, she's not directly flirting with the camera. She's flirting with the men around her. She has her own source of agency when it comes to attraction, 
but she is also styled with matted dreadlocks, missing teeth, and darker skin. It's this weird exotification specifically that I'm talking about, and that is across the board no matter where you're looking in your media. Your acceptable love interests are always these lighter-skinned black women that, through no fault of their own, are styled and held to this Eurocentric standard of beauty. Anybody who wears their hair naturally, has darker skin, or exhibits any form of agency for themselves is automatically considered off the list. But enough about that. Let's talk about a different category of black witches in media, specifically those that seem to never really live up to the expected potential that's placed upon them because their only role is to exist and highlight the specialness of the white protagonist or, more egregiously, come to the aid of the white protagonist, fulfilling another notch to that magical Negro bingo card. These are characters like Bonnie in The Vampire Diaries, who we're told is supposed to be incredibly powerful and gifted in magic, but seems to always sacrifice herself and her abilities for her white vampire friends. Or even characters like Prudence in The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Or the seer in Charmed. You know the seer in Charmed only shows up for like eight episodes? These are always uncomfortable for me as someone who consumes media because it seems like it's diversity for diversity's sake. Yes, I'm glad that you place black witches or black practitioners of magic in your show, but it would be nice if they, you know, weren't relegated to side characters, or made to be purposefully antagonistic to our white protagonists, or made to only come to their aid for a couple of episodes and then they fuck off to goddess knows where. But I suppose if I have to have my pick, it's better than being the magically gifted black character that's unceremoniously offed when their purpose in the story is no longer necessary. That's Grams in The Vampire Diaries, Abby Mills in Sleepy Hollow, and the one that I will continue to be pissed off about until the day I die, Kendra from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. When Kendra's introduced, it's specifically after our main character, Buffy, has kicked the bucket. So when Buffy is brought back to life, we're stuck with this really strange dynamic, where obviously, according to the show's lore, we can't have two slayers activated at any one point in time. So after a couple of episodes of dilly-dallying, Kendra finally meets her end when she's offed by the vampire queen Drusilla. Now here's where I am constantly frowning. Upon Kendra's death, another slayer is activated, fan-favorite Faith. All of a sudden, it's perfectly okay to have two slayers running around. We suddenly enjoy this level of tension and drama. And to rub more salt in the wound, at the end of the TV series, Hundreds of potential slayers are now activated. So you mean to tell me, black individual, black magic practitioner watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the first time as an adult, that it's perfectly okay now to have hundreds of slayers running about the world and doing their best to keep the world safe from vampires and demons and whatever have you. It's perfectly okay to have seasons upon seasons of weird angst between Faith and Buffy, but my girl Kendra could only survive for a few episodes before she's unceremoniously offed. Thanks. And yes, I know that she's back in the comics. It still reads as a cop-out as far as the TV series is concerned. I will always be mad about this. Hashtag justice for Kendra. So when we're around, we're often villainized or fetishized or made to be redundant, or killed off entirely. 
it seems like as far as witches of color are concerned, we can't win when it comes to representation in the media. It's rare that we even make it into in the first place, so we're supposed to be grateful whenever these pittances are thrown to us. And of course, when they are thrown in, they're often bogged down and betrayed by the narrative that they happen to be a part of. And it's unfortunate that this bleeds over into real life as well. I can't tell you how many times I find myself in a community of witchy folk here in Vancouver, and it still feels oddly colonial. It still feels very white. Now, some of that is just because, well, I am an immigrant in foreign lands, and I did not grow up with a appreciation of my traditional ancestral magic. This isn't something that I had access to. The Bahamas, as I said before, has been successfully colonized in that regard. So I am now here trying to pull my personal pieces back together. And because I am in a city where I'm the minority in the minorities, it becomes super hard to kind of navigate those witchy spaces when you don't feel like any of this particular type of magic speaks to you. No wonder I latched on to Setsuna and Sailor Moon. She was the closest thing I had. Oh, you guys thought I forgot about the craft. Trust me, I could never forget about the craft. I could never forget about Rochelle. I could never forget about the continuous mistreatment of Rachel True, Rochelle's actress. Can you imagine being part of such a pivotal piece of 90s pop culture, such a pivotal piece of witchy pop culture, and constantly being excluded and exempted and forgotten about in media? Something like that would blow my fucking mind, and it is astounding to me how often it happens to Rachel, and how many times she has to take it with grace and stride. As she often posts and mentions in her Instagram feed or her Twitter feed, Rachel's name is often excluded and exempted from any talk that has to do with the craft in favor of the other three white actresses that made up the main quartet, or sometimes more egregiously, in the case of a notable Hollywood Reporter article, mentioning a supporting white character as opposed to the one black main actress that was in it as well. Rochelle was groundbreaking in so many ways. She was a black witch in pop culture. She was a black character that survived a horror film, something that was completely unheard of at the time. And yet, in a classic example of just casual Hollywood racism, as recently as last fucking year, Rachel still found herself being excluded from press conferences and conventions that had to do with the anniversary of the film. You go ahead and book three out of the four witches that were necessary for calling up a circle and it just so happens that you forgot about the black one? <laughs> In fact, that just reminded me of the one time I went to Sephora with my friends and we discovered that Lunar Beauty, the makeup brand, had a eyeshadow palette out and the names were all taken from various pop culture witches. Somehow, they managed to remember the girls of the craft. Except Rochelle. Rochelle didn't have a color. Now, I'm sure you could hem and haw and rub your hands together and say, well, they can't include every single witch. That would be too many colors. But once again, I'm presented with an instance where you remember the names of the three white girls in the craft, but you don't remember the name of the one black girl who was their equal in power. I, it's bullshit. It's straight up bullshit. I can't even pretend to be like fake mad for the purpose of this podcast. I'm fucking pissed. <sighs> but you know what? 
it's not all that bad. Kind of the nice thing about growing up now is that a lot of us who were kids and enjoyed certain aspects of different media are now old enough to be working in these exact same industries and are now capable of creating the change that we wanted to see. We are now able to include ourselves in these narratives and create the representation that we so desperately need. Now, some of these still kind of miss the mark. Sometimes even a story that is centered around blackness and magic still centers whiteness overall. I'm looking at you, Siempre Bruja, or Always a Witch. I was super excited about this concept until I found out that the crux of this time-traveling witch's adventures was so that she could make it back in time to her white slave master boyfriend. There is so much wrong with that. Like for media to come out in this day and age and insinuate that relationships between slaves and slave masters was loving and consensual is disgusting and completely missing the point. But not all of the stories are bad. Some of these are actually really, really great. And of course, some of them have been existing for a while. When I think of positive depictions of root working and hoodoo practices and spirituality, I think of Daughters of the Dust and Eve's Bayou. I think of web series like Juju, created by somebody who, like me, saw Charmed and realized that there was something sorely lacking in the representation. I think of Jackie, creator of Adorned by Chi, someone who didn't see themselves represented in the anime that they loved, and then went on to create a series of Nigerian magical girls, blending this beautiful archetype of the fandoms that we enjoyed as kids with the ancestry and heritage of her motherland. Something like that is incredible, and I can't wait to see how that series develops. As a side note, if you haven't gotten that manga yet, go read it. It's available on her site for free. So what's the bottom line in all this? The bottom line is simple. Representation matters. It's 2020, and I feel like I shouldn't actually have to be saying that, but uh, it's 2020, and I still have to say it. Yes, it's exhausting to talk about how media often fails persons of color, persons from marginalized communities, and even through this lens, how they tend to fail the intersection of those of us that are black and those of us that are witches. I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong with me saying that I am fans of characters like Tia Dalma and still point out how inclusions of those types of characters where they're nothing but set dressing does all of us a disservice. I can be a fan of Kandra and point out just how poorly the Buffy universe treated her character as disposable. And I can still identify with the craft and Rochelle as a character, while still pointing out the constant racial microaggressions that Rachel True constantly has to deal with. These types of conversations do not exist in a vacuum, and I don't think there's anything wrong with continually pointing these things out. But, as properties like Juju and Adorned by Chi have shown, we are now in a unique position where we are able to create exactly what we want to see out there. And it's really empowering. A few years ago, I saw Sailor Pluto and realized that she was black. B. 
because I didn't think that a magical black girl was possible or even capable. Nah. Layered, complex, sometimes problematic, but ever-present, always powerful. And trust me, we're just getting started. So if you'd like to see Hey Magical Girl grow, consider visiting us at patreon.com slash heymagicalgirl. All the tiers are paid what you can and you get exclusive access to all things behind the scenes, including bonus meditations based on the episodes. You can also find me on Twitter at heymagicalgirl, so be sure to find me and tell me what you think. Until next episode, may love keep you kind.